from the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack, a broadcast that celebrates the talent and diversity of the LGBTQ plus community and their allies and provides a place to showcase their remarkable voices and stories. And welcome to Not Thinking Straight. In our first hour, we meet Jackie, a new designer in the rainbow community with a company called Butterflies in Rainbows and a special deal for our listeners. In I'm from Driftwood, you'll meet Pearl Bennett, who talks about transitioning later in life in the most beautiful story. Our second hour is devoted entirely to the films of John Waters. I have never found the antics of deviant to be one bit amusing. And a very special interview with Divine on Emerald City. Miss Bennett. Babs Johnson? Yes, I'm Babs Johnson. Special delivery package, ma'am. Sign here, please. What do you mean, special delivery package? There's no address here. It says right here, Babs Johnson, a trailer, Phoenix, Maryland. And you are Babs Johnson, aren't you? Of course I'm Babs Johnson. I just told you that. But there is no address here. This is not on any road, route, or street. And I don't want people on my property. So don't ever bring mail here again, do you understand? And the next package you bring me is getting shoved right up your little ass. Can you comprehend that? So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And we've got a really special treat for you today on Not Thinking Straight. I'm talking to a lovely Jackie who has a new business or a new interest called Butterflies and Rainbows, which has a a particular interest to LGBTQI people. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But first of all, welcome to Not Thinking Straight, Jackie. Hi, how are you? I'm really great. So I've discovered you online a link from your work came up and the most beautiful designs all different images around lgbtiq stuff and i was very impressed and i thought i'd get in touch with you and talk about your business and how you got into this so do you want to just give us a little bit of a rundown of of your life in like two minutes Yeah, no, that's easy. Um, okay, so, so I'm Jackie. I'm 28. I um, I identify as pansexual. I came out when I was 13 years old. So in saying that, when I was 13, I actually came out as bisexual. But over the years, that's just gradually changed after doing a little bit of research and stuff like that. So I suppose I've always been a part of the uh, LGBTQI. Um, <laughs> it's hard to get the letters right. I'm always uh, messing it up. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm married. I have a and I have a three year old daughter. Uh, my partner. Um, so we got married last November. I got I got married to my husband who about a month ago came out as a transgender woman. So I'm in the middle of the changes of transitioning from male to female from having a husband to a wife. I'm very open about that. I'm very comfortable around that. So together when this kind of all started, I kind of introduced butterflies and rainbows. Um, I already had my own business and then I just kind of started the second business really focusing on the LGBTQI community. And how was your coming out experience? Was it difficult or was it fairly fluid? Um, so for me, I didn't really grow up. I had a bit of a rough upbringing, so I was a foster child. So being a foster child, um, I didn't really feel the need to, I suppose, come out. I came out at school. However, I had been to 24 schools. That was just me and it wasn't a big deal, though my partner, on the other hand, her coming out was extremely tough. She thought I would leave her. She thought that I was going to take our daughter and all of those, you know, feelings and emotions, which was obviously very hard for her. But I was very extinct of that. So that made it a lot easier for her. But also in saying that she lost her entire family. So that's not good. 
However, we do have a really good little support circle and know that in Port Macquarie specifically, we don't actually have an LGBT little community or support services or anything here. The closest is three hours away. So we're, we're now starting our own little organisation here in Port Macquarie. So that's also really exciting. And um, we're going to do like barbecues and all that good stuff and kind of create our own little community here. That's wonderful to hear. Tell us about the design yeah. part of your life. I mean, they are absolutely beautiful, very colourful, and they've all got messages in them. And, you know, I thought it was really lovely. So that's why I wanted to have you on the show. So tell us about your artistic yeah, no, background you. and how you got to... Yep. As I mentioned before, I am a foster child, so I kind of didn't escape from everyday life. I needed to find something that, you know, just was a space for me and for me alone. Everything that was kind of going on in my life growing up. One of those things was Peter Pan, but putting that aside, it was real creative, you know, like whether it just be something as simple as colouring in. That's how it started. Colouring in turned into drawing, drawing turned into designing, and it kind of just extended from there. And I've always been a big person for personalised gifts. I love personalised gifts because gifts from heart that's you know something really close to me that's something that's always been very special for me so for Christmas I Santa brought me a beautiful machine and that's allowed me to start that so from there I just created and created and created and then once my and I came out that was it that was like yep this is exactly what I'm doing I'm not focusing on anything else now this is what I'm doing so there came my the start of my collection I have a million and one different ideas a lot more is being released a lot more is happening now i've done what i've done i've got 15 different designs currently but in saying that i've already extended on that so <laughs> it's happened very quickly the range that i've seen of the key rings it looks to me like it's enamel on a metal is that right the colors are they enamel or how do you do that so the keychains that you would have seen, so they're actually acrylic. So they're made out of acrylic and usually attached to a metal hardware, which is your key ring. And it's actually vinyl. So permanent vinyl applied to the key ring. So I have a machine that cuts all of that out for me. I design it and then my machine cuts it. It's got a Cricut machine. From there, I then obviously need to kind of, it's like a puzzle, I suppose, put it all together. So lots and lots of time and dedication to that because my designs are not so simple. As an example, like obviously some of my collection includes, you know, so that's lots of colouring and stuff like that. So, and each piece of vinyl is a separate colour. So puzzling those little pieces together can be quite intricate. But like I said, I enjoy doing it. So not really work for me so do you paint do you paint on the vinyl hand paint on no, the, vinyl? the vinyl no the vinyl is colored so i buy i purchase wholesale like my, my business i've got the colored vinyl different varieties of colors and everything like that and from there i cut the colored vinyl that's already done and i kind of just puzzle it all together to create the design that i've created and how do you get the lettering on there it sounds very complicated <laughs> it, it is very complicated um exactly the same thing again it's it's vinyl, my machine cuts it for me and then I apply it. I do all the design on a program that I've got on my computer or my iPad and yeah, very, very, very time consuming. <laughs> Fantastic. And one, you know, with Christmas coming up, if people celebrate Christmas, they're beautiful gifts for LGBTQI folk. I also do Christmas baubles and um, a lot of companies who, that do personalised gifts tend to do um, glittered baubles with you know, names and stuff like that. Well, mine's a little different because I've, um, I mine a feather field and I do colours dedicated to different, you know, I suppose different um, members of the LGBT community, whether that be, you know, gay where everything is like different shades of blue and the um, like all of that sort of stuff. Then you've got pride, which is obviously the rainbow. You've got transgender, which is the blue, pink, white, et cetera, et cetera. I do have only 12 of 
like flag inspired ones because there's so many of them but obviously they're custom made so i can put anything together i just try to do keep it as simple as possible <laughs> so could people send you ideas or words and what they want done and you could work on that i, I can definitely do that you're only limited to your imagination so i've created everything so far that they're my ideas but in saying that anything's possible so if someone was to have an idea and put it forward to me i'd like yeah I can do that and then do that. And I believe, Jackie, you've got some new designs coming out. So the current 15, so um, I don't know which uh, clearings you've seen. I don't know if you've, so I've done the, um, the rainbow one. So they're literally the rainbows that are pride inspired that have all the different flags. I've also done, okay, and those ones there. So that's my rainbow collection. So I'll be doing those exact designs again, times 12 um, with the 12 different flag inspired things so at the moment like that once the rainbow pride flag so i'll be doing those exact designs again but done in the say the transgender colors again in the um, gay lesbian all of them so it's that so far um i've also released yesterday i released travel mugs and there's a lot more to come like as simple as a bookmark with the pride rainbow ribbon attached to it lots to come Wonderful. Are you doing earrings? I've not endeavoured into earrings or jewellery yet. That's something I may look at down the future. I do have product to allow me to do that, but not something I have yet thought of. Okay, well, let's tell our listeners where they can go to have a look at your designs and, and support an LGBTQI business. Absolutely. I have a Facebook page, which is rainbows.butterfliesau. I've also got an Instagram, which is the same. I also have a TikTok, which is exactly the same again. And I also have a website that I have also created and that again butterflies and rainbows which is um on a square site wonderful they're really impressive absolutely right so you know say thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you and also you know that i'm a big supporter of the lgbt community regardless of you know purchases and no purchases on someone you know if someone's feeling down and alone i'm always a shoulder to cry no matter who you are so even if you just message me through the pages i'm just for a chat i'm also more than happy to do that that's something that you know i want everyone to know that no one's alone well it's been a real treat to talk to you you're a lovely person and it's nice to see that you know, you're focusing your energies in in really positive ways like that so um so thank you it's a real privilege thank you so much and we've been speaking to Jackie from Butterflies and Rainbows. And Jackie has very kindly offered a special deal for our listeners. If you go onto the Butterflies and Rainbows, either the website or the Facebook, and if you want to place an order, put in the code NTS10, which is for not thinking straight, and the 10 is 10% discount. So if you want to support an LGBTQ business that makes products just for us, you can get 10% off right there. And now we're going on a holiday with a little Nas X. Hey, it's a holiday. I got foes on foes and they out of control, yo. Hey, this another way. All my hit does on go and I hope that you know it. I can't even close my eyes and I don't know why. I guess I don't like surprises. I can't even stay away from the game that I play. They gon' know us today, yo. Hey, can I pop this? You tried to put me in the bubble, but I popped it. Switch the genre on you. Do a rocket. I got the biggest song. Check the charts, sis. I don't need them. They wanna know if I be last done. Even if I started flopping, that be fashion. Popping up in movies ain't no Nazi. This ass done. Hee hee. I'm bad as Michael Jackson. Hey, it's a holiday. 
I got foes on foes and they out of control, yo Ayy, this another way All my hit does on go and I hope that you know it I can't even close my eyes and I don't know why Guess I don't like surprises I can't even stay away from the game that I play They gon' know us today Man, I snuck into the game, came in on a horse I pulled a gimmick, I admitted I got no remorse Nobody tried to let me in, nobody opened doors I kicked them down, they didn't have a choice Dun, 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 they tried to next me Ayy, but I'm blessy Ayy, no flex, but my checks giving vetties Ayy, and I'm sexy They wanna sweat me Pop star, but the rappers still respect me They wanna know if I be last done Even if I started flopping, that be fashion Popping up in movies, ain't no Nazi This ass done Hee hee, I'm bad as Michael Jackson Ayy it's a holiday, I got foes on foes and they out of control, yo Ayy, it's another way, all my hit does on go and I hope that you know it I can't even close my eyes and I don't know why, guess I don't like surprises I can't even stay away from the game that I play, they gon' know us today, yo Bill, a.k.a. Corinne. And I'm Alex Berg, and you're listening to the I'm, I'm from, from Driftwood, Driftwood Podcast. Almost four years ago, our next guest, Pearl, sat down with I'm from Driftwood and opened up about her life and self-discovery. In 1997, give or take a year or two, I was working out on Fire Island, and I worked at this little restaurant called El Hot Spot. It was a Mexican restaurant, and I was told that I could wear anything I wanted. And in fact, they encouraged me to dress up, be myself. I was wearing church dresses, sort of with hats sometimes, all different kinds of wigs. And I didn't know much about makeup, but I had some girlfriends that started to help me with the makeup and stuff. I was given this creative freedom. I had basically lived as a gay man, and Pearl hadn't emerged yet. And so I was wearing, I just tried to put together things that I could find. A lot of the old drag queens out on the island would retire, and their drag, and they would put it up at uh, yard sales. And I would go shopping. That's where I did my shopping in the beginning, because... I dare not go to any store to buy women's clothing. And so I was uh, getting ready to come into the city. And I was going to go through my whole routine back into my male clothing and get ready to come back. Simple. I've done it a thousand times. And at that time, I, I couldn't get it together. I couldn't change my clothes. And I couldn't get out of my drag to go back into the city. And I felt so schizophrenic, and I started talking to myself. I said, okay, now, Pearl, come on off it. Or I might have even talked to Ken. I said, okay, chop, chop, let's get it together. Let's get on that boat, take off these clothes. 
And it was like Pearl came out of me and said, I'm not taking them off. It was like, I said, what? And she said, I'm not taking this dress off. And I'm holding a conversation with myself. I said, of course you are. I said, we can't go. And so I went up to the Ice Palace and I remember talking to one of the, uh, one of the entertainers there. And I said, I'm going back into the city just like this. And he said, no, Pearl, you got to take it off because you could be beat up or you could. Be. I said, Pearl won't take, let me take the drag off. So I know they probably said, this child's been doing a little too many drugs. So I ran home, got my bag, got my stuff, and I got on the boat. It was the most surreal trip across the bay from Cherry Grove back to Sayville. And I'm on the way in, and people are looking, and I look just like what I am. And I go in, and I remember walking through Penn Station, and I'm in a flowing something, and people, and when I looked, like, in my wake, you know how you walk past somebody, and if you look back real quick, in your wake, there's all these people staring, like, what? And I get on the subway, and I catch the train on back down this way. Now... It's getting ready to just throw everything out that I thought I was. A gay black man living with HIV. The big hurdle for me was telling my family about my living as a, a woman now, living as a transgendered woman. What I did is I went to a friend's art opening, and they took this wonderful picture of me. And so I had that picture blown up or made into a photograph. I wrote in a little note in the picture saying that my name is Pearl. This is, a, this is how I look. And I closed the thing. I packed and I wrote addresses and I put stamps on it and I mailed it all. Then I followed it up with a telephone call. I waited until I thought everybody had gotten the pictures. I called my mother first and I said, Ma, she said, yes. I said, did you get my picture? And I, she said, yeah. She said, what was this all about? Like, see that? I said, well, Ma, did you get it or not? She's beating around the bush. She would love to have said, no, I didn't get it. And maybe it's a go away, but it's not going away. And she said, I got it. What is wrong? And I said, nothing is wrong. I said, I wanted my family to know what's going on with me and, uh, and include you in my life. And I said, I'm telling all of you. She said, well, don't tell your oldest brother. I said, too late, mama. I've sent him the same picture. Well, how about your sister? I sent her a picture, too. And I assume you sent Junior a picture. Yes. So that was that. That's how I came out to them. Didn't hear anything after that. And then a few months later, 
this was about 2002. My bell rings. I go, I'm here with my lover. We're in the bed. My lover is no clothes on. I go to the intercom and I said, who is it? And my nephew says, it's Todd. I said, Todd? And grandmother's here with me. And she says, Bernie, open the door. And she's looking at me and she's <laughs> this, you don't know what to say. And I know she's taking it all in. And she said, well, Todd's having a dinner party for us tonight. And she said, you're expected to be there. I said, oh, you want me to come? I said, I'll be there. I'll be there. And I came in a, I dressed, and I don't know what possessed me to wear a blonde wig. <laughs> I felt it. And when I came in, I found this a little endearing. My mother said, oh, why didn't you wear the other hair? I like that in, a, in some kind of odd way. It was like she liked that look. So anyway, um, things were going well. My nephew cooked a beautiful dinner, and we sat. I met a lot of the other relatives. Everybody was a little stiff and a little awkward because, you know, I'm meeting them for the first time. They realize I'm, I'm transgendered. My nephew is so happy to have my mother and me there, but he, I see he's still a little nervous, but sweet, sweet man. After we ate dinner, I went into the living room and started talking with some of the people. I'm feeling more comfortable now. And then all of a sudden, I hear this voice saying, Bernie, what is all this? And it sounded familiar. And when I spun around, it's, I see that look in my mother's eyes of like back when I was a kid and she was like a little drunk. And she looks at me and she said, what is this? And she strikes my breast. And I said, Mama, what are you doing? And I realized that she's drunk. And she, that's when she said, she came in close and she said, I just want you to know that West Palm Beach is not big enough for Pearl and the Bennetts. So she's getting a little drunker, and I know she could be violent. So I got up and I said, you know, it's time. My gut feeling was telling me it's time to leave. The party's over. And I went into the kitchen and I thanked my nephew. And I said, Todd, thank you. The dinner was wonderful. I said, thank you for inviting me. And I said, I, I'm not going to be spending the night. I walk out the door and I don't, dis I don't say anything to my mother because I don't want her, you know, I just want to get out of there as quietly as possible. And when she heard the door close, she realized I had left the room or left the apartment. And she opens the door, she flings the door open, and she, she yells, Bernie, get back here. I don't look back. And I walk to the elevator. It's at the end of the hall. And I press the, button, the down button. And she's yelling and she's screaming. And the door is open. And she said, come back here now. And I doors close and I can hear her still screaming. And down I go. 
And she called the next morning and said, didn't we have a great time? And I said, Mama, I said, she said, are you coming? Uh, we're going to do something tonight. I said, no, I'm not coming. And she couldn't understand. And I realized then she was in a blackout that night. She didn't remember anything. When I left that apartment, I felt like I had been ostracized from my family and that I no longer had a childhood home to go to, go back to. I no longer saw my mother in person while she was alive after that visit, even though we spoke on the phone almost every day. We made peace with each other. I forgave her, and I, I knew I loved her. I was able to tell her that before she died. And at the funeral, it seemed like I had come you know, I remembered that conversation we had had at my nephew's house that West Palm Beach wasn't big enough for the Pearl and the Bennett's. Here I stand in front of my childhood home in West Palm Beach, the home of the Bennett's. Certainly, there's more than enough room. Please welcome back to I'm From Driftwood, the one and only Pearl. Hi there. Hi. Hey, Pearl. How are you? I'm fine. I'm happy to be here. Oh, Glad so... to meet both you, Alex, and you, Phil. Oh, so and, nice to have um, you. Yes, yes, yes. Well, we are so excited to be talking to you. And honestly, we should just get right into it because there are so many questions that we have. It's okay. been almost four years since we spoke to you last. So we'd love if you could start with an update about how you're doing now. I, I feel like I've grown a lot through a lot of experience. And what is that saying? You, when you know better, you do better. And um, how I'm doing now, of course, I have to take in consideration of COVID-19, sheltering in place. I really haven't seen a lot of my friends. I haven't gone to a lot of my, any of my face-to-face -face support group, but I have done a lot of stuff on Zoom. You know, and I'm, I turned 70 years old while this is going on, I I thought I was going to have a birthday party or do something special for 70 being a big milestone. Okay, so I have a question for you. you yes. Know, Alex and I are huge fans of your original stories. Do you have any noteworthy memories from your time of shooting with us? I was terrified when I did that interview with Nathan and Damien. All day in the apartment, we were here all day. They just let me talk. And I talk, and I talk. All I know is when it start, when those stories start pouring out of me, I just felt like, wow. First, I was scared because I was, you know, it's always when you're telling your story, how is the family going to react? How are certain straight friends going to react? You know, I was just letting it all hang out. And so a lot of people didn't know a lot of that stuff. So... And once I started telling the stories, it just felt like, wow, I just, I felt like I was just letting out so much stuff that I had been holding in or stuff that I had told in bits and pieces. 
And so my, some of my relatives heard, they saw the videos. So, you know, and I talked with Nathan and Damien and that they were going to keep the, these videos would be here long after I was gone. And that if it could help one person, one person, it was worth all those hours. I think that that is such an amazing way of framing it and just seeing this, the, the power of storytelling and, and just how your own experiences can affirm someone else or help them see themselves reflected in your own story. And it sounds like it was almost a cathartic experience for you just being able to put it all out there. It I was. Yeah. And in particular, I love that in one of your stories, um, when you spoke about your time working at El Hotspot, when the owners told you that... <laughs> <laughs> you were able to wear what you want and they encouraged yeah. you to, to dress up and you literally started wearing dresses. Um, <laughs> looking back on that, I mean, do you feel like that was the first time Pearl was coming to the surface? E- yes. I would never wear the drag in the city. And in the story about, you know, when Pearl, she told, she turned and told me, I'm not taking this dress off. I had never been on the Long Island Railroad with a dress on. Walked through Penn Station. They were terrifying experience, but yet at the same time, they were so freeing and they felt so right. And I saw the possibilities were just, I went through a puberty, young adult, and I aged into this woman that, sort of mature woman that Pearl is today, that she can sit and hold her own. And loving more who I am allows me to empathize and love my trans sisters and brothers and my gay brothers and sisters. And just look out and see even the people that that don't understand my community and even may want to do harm. I see the ignorance in that where the fear, people fearing what they don't understand. You're listening to Not Thinking Straight, and this is a podcast from the I'm From Driftwood Project. To Not Thinking Straight, and I'm Michael Mack, and this is a story from the I'm from Driftwood podcast. You know, hearing the way that you describe that moment walking through Penn Station in the clothing that felt affirming to you. On this podcast, Phil and I have spoken about how we've both been affirmed in our identities by clothing. So that's just something that really resonated with me in terms of what you were saying. Looking back, were there instances before then that you had thought about all this? Back in the 70s, I remember that I went to a friend's house in the Lower East Side and the gay life was centered around Greenwich Village then before it moved up to Chelsea and now I guess it's up in Hale's Kitchen now the epicenter of gay life but I remember that we were drinking and I think my friend helped dress me but I put on a dress or gown or something 
and a wig. And I think this friend did my makeup. Now, this was in the 70s. This was, wow, this was 20, what, 27, 28 years before Pearl. She was always there. And I know she was there because this was an example of how I knew Pearl was always there. I, got, I remember getting dressed and we got in a taxi and went down to the village. And we went to a place called Peter Rabbit's. And that was a little gay, it was gay certain days. They had drag queens performing and they had this and that. And I remember very little of it because I, I had to be plastered to be in that dress because I did not have the nerves to be in that dress. And so all I know is I was dancing. I was told I had a good time. And I remember when I woke up in my friend's house, I had the wig on still. I had the dress on still. And I didn't want to take it off. And they said I was the life of the party with this party dress on. I was kind of shy as Ken, always quiet. Ken dressed very plain, nice guy. But Pearl was just, she was out there. She was doing things. She was, she was just alive, bigger than life. It's pretty clear that Pearl is undeniable. Can you tell us the story of how you came up with Pearl and how Pearl got her name? Uh, <laughs> well, it was during Gay Pride weekend. I was invited out by my friends to Fire Island. I went out after the parade. Yeah, I think it was 97, 98. That year, the theme for the Gay Pride parade had a Mardi Gras theme. And I remember they were throwing these beads out from the floats and stuff. And I ended up getting quite a few of the beads. And, and the beads I really liked were the ones that looked like pearls. And I took them to Fire Island with me. I was going out for a week's holiday. And my friend Myron at the time was the chef at El Hotspot. So I put my stuff in the house and I came down and he wanted to show me where he was the chef. They were so busy that evening. And so I told him, I said, Myron, instead of just showing me, let me help you. And so I insisted. So he said, yes. And I came back. I put my pearls on. And here I am. I'm helping him clean tables. I'm picking up food. Some guy in the kitchen said, you, your food's ready. And I went, ran to get the food and this and that. And, and at one, some point in there, he said, you, Pearl, because I had the pearls on. When he said Pearl, I looked and I, I thought about it and I said, oh my God, I like that. And Pearl was a name for my generation, my grandmother, my aunts, my, this was a name that was popular then. We didn't have the Afrocentric names back then. But I liked Pearl. I said, oh, I like it. I literally kept that name from then on. And so I don't think that guy to this day know he named me. Uh, that's, that's such a great story. I, love, I mm -hmm. love how Pearl got named. It's pretty incredible. You know, when you were coming out as Pearl, you sent your family a note as well as a picture. Did you hold on to the picture or the note? <laughs> I have the picture oh, wow. and I have that picture that I sent to my family. I had to go through it and look for it. And when I found it, I made, I took a 
very good photograph of that picture and I was able to put it on my Facebook page. And that picture is of me around early 2001. I sent that picture and I will forever hold on to that picture. Well, staying on the topic of your family, um, in one of your I'm from Driftwood videos, you speak about being invited to a party by your nephew and a pretty tense situation with, with your mom, um, which led you to leave. How do you feel looking oh, back on that now? Oh my God. From the woman, the one woman I wanted approval from and the love from, I, you know, it was just very hurtful. But I knew I loved her. And I'm so glad that I got the chance to make up with her and we got to speak before she passed away. Yeah, that's a tough story for me. That sounds like incredibly difficult to navigate. And I just have such an appreciation that you opened up to us uh, to talk about that experience. Um, I mean, it sounds like so much to take in and process in the moment and even all of these years later. Um, were you ever, you mentioned that you were able to eventually talk to your mom. I mean, did you ever yeah. confront her about her actions? I never did confront her. We went for a period there. We weren't, we didn't speak for a while. And I think I was still in therapy at the time. And I think I even upped my therapy to two times a week. I just needed space and time to heal. And do I regret not confronting her with this? And part of me would have loved to, but eventually she started getting sick. She never came back to New York. She wanted to, but I just loved her sort of from afar for a while. Mm. And then I was able to tell her on her deathbed that I loved her. Well, before that, I had talked, I started talking to her every day then. And I think I did it not only for her, but I did it for me as well. And I've heard people handle these situations in so many different ways. But I went on my gut feeling and what I could live with and what I I didn't find it any need to do that at that time, in her, especially as her life was ebbing. That makes all the sense in the world. I completely understand. Mm -hmm. With your family, though, were there any members of your family that accepted your transition right off the bat? My brother, back during the early 2000, was leaning toward born-again Christian. He was a photographer. We were very close. That was hard for him. And my sister, she wasn't having any of it. And I was very close to her because we spent the most time together because when my older two brothers left, we, my sister and I were in the house together and I braided her hair. She got me all the Barbie dolls and I would tell her what I want so she could tell daddy. So when my parents went to work, I got to play with the Barbie dolls and the Easy Bake Oven. Now, I think, that we grew up in a time where that was just not acceptable. And I, you know, and my mother had gay friends. That's what seems so strange. And uh, my sister, she, one of her best friends was a gay guy that she loved. I knew him when I used to go home and he passed from AIDS, but that was one of my sister's best friends. And he was a gay guy. But now, 
my sister and I got along when I was just gay, but Pearl, no way. I got along with my mother when I was just Ken. And my brother got along with me long as I didn't bring up any of this gay stuff. And I remember my mother making a statement when I was still in school and living at home. I think I was in like the eighth, ninth grade. She said, the one thing I would never permit or allow in my house is for anybody, any of you, uh, well, she was directing it at me, to put on a dress. And I think we were watching something on TV and it was some show and I didn't like to watch anything gay or even hinted of gay with my family because I was too afraid of how they were gonna react. And I like to watch those things by myself so I could get into them and feel the fantasy and this and that. But I don't know what it was. We, it might've been Flip Wilson on TV doing Geraldine. You know, to this day, I'm very supportive of my sister because she's going through her own health problems now. But do you know, to this day, she, she will not call me Pearl. Mm. I've been living as Pearl for 20 years before wow. some of her grandchildren were born. She cannot, and she loves me. She loves me. But she can, she has a hard time with that. And now she is going through her own illness and stuff. And I made up my mind because when my mother passed away, I took, Pearl went down to Florida and I got, the whole family got to see me. And I went down for my mother's funeral, but I felt, I asked some friends to go with me. I reached out for help and I had, Two of my best friends, one lived in Fort Lauderdale and one was my best friend up here. And we flew down together to West Palm and, and they supported me through the wake, the funeral, the burial, and through going back to the house. And I will forever be grateful because they reminded me of who I am. Well, Pearl, one thing that I've noticed throughout this entire conversation is that you really built all these moments in your life to empower yourself, whether that was making sure you had these friends who were chosen family to come with you to the funeral, whether you sought to work through the issues that had been a result of your family for yourself so that you could self-actualize and so you could empower yourself. And something you also said earlier was that you have a sense of longevity. So I was wondering... Is there any advice you would give to young trans folks on coming out to their family? I would advise, if you're going to do it in person, make sure that the environment is safe. I don't know if they would like to do it like I did it, like tell all of the members, and that way the family would have each other to lean on when they're, if they're going through, you know, when they're dealing with their feelings about their loved one. And another thing is, if you need to have a friend support you, I would suggest that. And another thing is talk with somebody before you do this. I suggest that everybody should be in some kind of support group. Well, Pearl, looking forward, what's next for you? I take it one day at a time. So I don't know. I've done a lot of stuff that I haven't seen come out yet. 
I've done two photo shoots and one was so professional and they had a car come and pick me up and take me to Brooklyn. And I went to this warehouse and they did a whole photo shoot of me. And I had, they had like hair, makeup, wardrobe, and the whole night, I really felt like a professional shoot. And I had never done anything like that. And that could have ended up on billboards and posters and who knows on the side of a bus or anything. And now this new, new something has emerged that was peeking out all the time. Pearl was there. She didn't have a name, but she was there. Everything up to this point had led to me being true to myself as a transgendered woman. And I, at that point, I had no idea what that meant. Because for the next 16 years, it, and it still continue today, it's, it's been a journey. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. Pearl, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you today. What a wonderful conversation we've had today with you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Pearl. It was truly oh, delightful. Guys, you guys are the best. The best. Oh. And Andy, I know you're somewhere there. <laughs> from Driftwood Podcast is hosted by Phil aka Corinne and Alex Berg and is produced by Andy Egan Thorpe. The podcast is recorded as part of I'm from Driftwood, a worldwide nonprofit LGBTQIA plus story archive and is funded in part from TD Bank and Heritage of Pride New York. I'm from Driftwood was created by Nathan Mansky to help queer and trans people learn more about their community, help straight people learn more about their neighbors, and help everyone learn more about themselves, all through the power of storytelling. The IFD program director is Damian Middlefeld. The stories you heard today are available in their entirety, plus thousands more, at I'mFromDriftwood.org. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and our score is provided by Elevate Audio. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, y'all, for listening. And as usual, a huge thank you to the I'm from Driftwood team for these fabulous stories they share with us here on Not Thinking Straight. Please head off to their website, I'm from Driftwood, and you can subscribe there and support the fine work that they do, as well as read all the support material that goes with these wonderful broadcasts. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack.
wonderful Australian documentary Brazen Hussies that was Toxic Shock with Intoxicated. Listen, I, I am also a feminist and I think the way, I think mostly the way my feminism sort of manifests is that I do think there could be less straight men, you know? Um, this is a general, now listen, I don't want anyone to feel attacked. This is not personal. I just think you ruin so much, you know? Uh, for me, Personally, you know, like I, I, you're always showing up to karaoke and groups singing Spice Girls songs because you think it's funny. Meanwhile, some of us are waiting to sing, you know? And you're taking up space. I came here to work some shit out with a little Vanessa Carlton. And I can't get up there because you're busy doing your bits. And it's just so frustrating. And I think like a lot of gay men too, or excuse me, a lot of straight men, like you truly do like, misunderstand what the experience of being gay is. Like, I have a lot of straight male friends, very bravely I do, and whenever I talk about being single, like, they're always just like, oh, Joel, you're so lucky to be gay. Like, I would, you know, gay guys are just fucking all the time, just nonstop fucking. You know, if I were gay, I'd be having so much more sex than I'm having now. And it's like, no, you wouldn't, because you'd still look like that, you know? It's just not, I don't understand what you think about homosexuality, that it's just a doorway you walk through where you don't look like garbage anymore, you know? Like, it's actually much, harder on our side of the fence, you know, because we grade on a much sharper curve in the gay community than y'all do. You know, like in Chicago, where I'm from originally, I was like a seven on a good day, and then I moved here, and I found out I'm like a six at best, and then I go to Los Angeles, and I find out I'm like a solid burn victim. You know, like it's just not a friendly environment for us. It's not easier by any means. I will say, like, the thing that I think gets a lot of people is they're just like, oh, but the apps, you know, like your apps, like straight people have like Bumble and Tinder and whatnot. And, and gay men, we have Grinder and Scruff and Jacked and Adam for Adam and Radar and Recon and Manhunt and VGL and Daddy Hunt and Growler and Boy Ahoy. There's one called Boy Ahoy. I don't even know who that's for, like young enterprising sailors, who knows, you know? But I've got it on my phone because you gotta set a lot of traps, you know, you really do. If you want to catch anything, you got to set the traps. And I have it. But here's the difference, the big difference between your apps and ours is that like Tinder and Bumble, et cetera, will show you like within a miles radius, like how close someone is, like within miles. And Grinder and Scruff, et cetera, will tell you within number of feet. <laughs> Which is not good. <laughs> I don't know who decided like that was a good idea. Cause like my neighbor is gay and he's also on Grinder. And every so often I'll look at it and it'll be like, oh good, he's 15 feet away, he's in the kitchen. You know, like I just, I know too much information about him. And I'm worried that one night I'm just gonna get really drunk and like come home and message him and he's gonna be like, oh my God, the grind grinder's coming from inside the house. Like where, where is he? There's a nation in my walls. I don't know, it's crazy. And then I think like the other crazy thing is that you guys like, 
you think that we're all predators? Like, we're out to get shit. Like, I, I did a show in a bar recently, and I went into the men's room afterwards, and there was a row of urinals, and there was a man just standing at one of the urinals peeing, and he looked up and saw me, and then he started to pee away from me into the urinal, an unnatural angle to pee into a urinal. And I just, I was like, well, now I have to see it. You know, like, I just, you're hiding it away like it's a national treasure. Turn around, show me that Tetris piece, you weirdo. Like, what you working with? It is crazy to me. Like, do you know who Pat Robertson is? He's a, yeah, he's a tele, he's an evangelical televangelist. He's a kook and he has a show. And on his show, he literally said this. You can look it up on YouTube. He said that all gay men have matching rings with little tiny needles in them so that when we shake your hand, we can give you HIV. And it's like, really, Pat? You think that all the gay men got together and agreed on matching rings? Like, that's... <laughs> I don't know who's organizing that Google Doc, but it's not me, sir, okay? Like, I can't even get Adam Morella to show up to brunch on time, let alone organize a global conspiracy. Just not happening. I guess my thing is that I just don't, I don't really, um, I'm not passionate about animals. You might have sensed that about me. Uh, I do, I like animals, they're fine. I just, I find a lot of them super annoying. Like, I think bees are high strung, you know? Uh, <laughs> Every single morning, a bee wakes up and is like, if that person even looks at me wrong, I will kill myself, you know? Uh, it's like, take it down, you know? Um, and I swear to God, if one of you fucking nerds tells me a bee is not an animal, I will kill myself, you know? Uh, I've heard it and I won't listen. <laughs> I won't do it, I won't do it. Like, I really need people to stop sharing these videos of crows on Facebook that have learned how to talk and can use tools. It's like, stay in your own lane, crows, okay? Like, that's sort of our thing, talking and using tools. Uh, don't need it. Like, what, uh, what do you do for work, sir? Yeah. I do uh, social media marketing. Social media marketing. A crow could do that tomorrow, okay? <laughs> like, my parents are worried about immigrants taking jobs. Be worried about the crows, you know? Like, they're the ones who are coming for them. I have a lot of friends in my life who really care about animals, and I had a, one friend show me this video that was supposed to put the fear of God in me about um, animal extinction. And the, anim the, the video, it begins like, imagine the world is just a pond outside your window. And I think, okay, already this is a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're throwing a lot of labor onto me. Uh, but okay, I'm there. Uh, the world is just a pond outside my window. And the, the, the video continues and it's like, in 1970, that pond would have been full of a hundred storks. And now today, in 2017, it's full of 30 storks. And it's like, that is still so many storks. You know? <laughs> I know that's supposed to be shocking to me, but have you ever seen a stork? You know, like they're an unseemly bird. Uh, they're just like so hard to manage. And quite honestly, 30 seems like too much. Um, I wouldn't be able to do it. Like, I feel, that doesn't seem like a problem to me. It feels like someone woke up one morning, looked outside their window and was like, I gotta do something about these goddamn storks. <laughs> this is insane. They've overrun the pond. Hi, I get the guy, you know, like. I just think that it's just a strange thing. Um, the comedy of Joel Kim Booster. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. 
from the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. And now Matt Baum presents John Waters, Divine and the Trinity of Trash. Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. Shocking. Housewarming. New gown. Murder. Shameless. I was having an erotic dream. And absolutely delicious. Oh, the Eggman! The Eggman! In 1960s Baltimore, a 16-year-old puppeteer named John Waters picked up a camera and started making amateur underground movies with his friends, a troupe of outcasts who called themselves the Dreamlanders. After years of playing to church basements and micro-theaters, audiences around the country started to take notice when John released three groundbreaking movies, The Trinity of Trash, Pink Flamingos, Female Trouble, and Desperate Living. Or if you don't recognize Divine, you might recognize the character she inspired. And don't underestimate the importance of a body language. <laughs> the Little Mermaid's Ursula. Or you might have seen John's guest appearance on The Simpsons. I have something that I'd like to sell. Please tell me it's your hair. Or maybe you saw the movie Hairspray, starring Zac Efron and Queen Latifah, which is a remake of a Broadway adaptation of John Waters' 1988 movie of the same name, starring Divine. Could you turn that racket down? I'm trying to iron in here. When John's films first came out, audiences had an intense reaction. Oh, it's marvelous. Absolutely. disgusting thing I've ever seen in my whole life. So how do they lead to an iconic Disney villain? An appearance on a family sitcom and a cheerful musical now performed in schools across the country? And why are we still talking about these scandalous movies to this day? Well, for one thing, they included such shocking acts that censors needed someone to explain to them what they were seeing. I didn't know what to put down they were doing. I didn't even know. For another, they had more queer characters than had ever appeared in any mainstream movie. The world of heterosexual is a sick and boring life. But one of the most striking things about the movies is the shameless way that the heroes pursue whatever brings them pleasure. How they go after whatever they want with gleeful freedom and that they're totally unconcerned with the approval of mainstream society. No matter how desperate their circumstances, no matter how much trouble they cause, they're always having a fantastic time. It's Divine's world, we're just living in it. I will be queen one day. Hey friends, I'm Matt Baum, I make videos about pop culture, and this time we're looking at how John Waters' early films harnessed the power of shamelessness to become icons of trash cinema. I have never found the antics of deviants to be one bit amusing. So before we can talk about the trinity of trash, let me catch you up on who John Waters is and what made his work unique. Even as a young child, he had a certain reputation. He loved evil witches. When he was six, he begged his parents to take him to the local junkyard to see wrecked cars because he was obsessed with car crashes. And as he got older, he put on puppet shows based on horror films for the neighborhood kids. John's parents didn't know what to do with their gory little child, but they got some good advice from doctors. And I remember asking the pediatrician about it and he said, if he wants to smash up cars, let him. Strange as he was, John's parents loved him, and they saw what made him happy. So after he turned 16, his grandmother gave him a film camera, and his parents loaned him some money so he could start making movies with the other weird kids who were his friends. John had two obsessions around this time, schlocky B-movies from the 1950s, and also experimental art films by Andy Warhol. He decided to combine them and give them a twist by adding a ton of ridiculous melodrama, queer characters, and all the deranged filth that he had to keep under wraps as a Catholic schoolboy. His first movies were full of images that would have been pretty shocking back in the 1960s. A drag queen nun, a deranged nanny who forces her victims to model themselves to death, an attack by a giant lobster. I'm just trying to uh, 
give people a good time, you know, make them laugh, and uh, give them a little shock value for their money's worth. The cast were all his friends, and the star of his movie was a neighborhood kid who did drag under the name Divine, and who loudly rebelled against what were the drag standards of the time. You can see what drag looked like back then in the 1968 documentary The Queen. Elegant, glamorous beauty pageants where performers competed in tasteful ball gowns and exquisite jewels. Divine wore clownish makeup and garish outfits. John's films show a character who's big and bold and brash and absolutely shameless. I want him to be the Godzilla of drag queens. I wanted other drag queens to run in tears. And other drag queens were so square then. They wanted to be Miss America and they wanted to be Donald Trump. Basically, that were their values. And they hated Divine. John's early shorts picked up a following in little local cafes and small theaters, but he wanted to make something bigger. And he finally got a shot in 1972 thanks to a newly created company called New Line Cinema. Today, you might know New Line as the company that made the Lord of the Rings movies, but in the 1970s, the company was basically one guy named Bob Shea working out of his apartment, sending copies of the drug movie Reefer Madness to college campuses. Bob told John that he could distribute his next film, it just needed to be a little more polished. So what John made was Pink Flamingos. Now if you're planning to watch these movies, and I recommend you do, provided you know what you're getting into, first I should give you a little heads up. Now a warning? In addition to being daring and influential and very unique, there's some content in these films that is hard for me to even describe. I'd recommend looking up a summary before you watch. And if you're concerned about spoilers, I wouldn't worry. The plots are light and you'll still get plenty of surprises in the execution. You would step down from your throne for the love of a mutant? So, now that you're prepared, let's discuss what I like to call the Trinity of Trash, three films that John Waters produced in the 1970s that brought him national fame, created a culture of midnight movies, and made trash into something trendy. It's a little gross, but I liked it. We'll start with 1972's Pink Flamingos. We open on a trailer where the notorious criminal Divine is hiding out with her family. Divine has just been named the filthiest person alive, with good reason. We see her taunting hitchhikers, stealing dinner between her legs, and relieving herself in public. But Divine isn't embarrassed by the title. She's thrilled. As far as she's concerned, it's the highest possible honor. She's the living embodiment of be gay, do crime. But unbeknownst to Divine, a scheming, well-to-do couple from the suburbs named Connie and Raymond Marble think they're entitled to the honor of being named the filthiest people alive. They run a network of adult bookstores, they fund heroin dealers in elementary schools, but their main mayhem is also more cruel kidnapping women and forcing them to produce babies for lesbian couples. They're not just dirty like Divine, they're also abusive and exploitative, and they are furious about Divine's recognition. We'll see who's the filthiest person alive. We'll just see! This is a world where filthiness is a status symbol. Divine revels in it. Look at her walking down the street, beaming as every head turns to stare. Her filthiness is an asset. When someone compliments her cooking, she boasts about how she came by the meat. Smells delicious, Babs. Oh, thank you, Cotton. It should. I warmed it up when I was downtown today in my own little oven. The Marbles want what Divine has. They're determined to be recognized as the filthiest people alive. They send her a disgusting present in the mail with a taunting note. You are no longer the filthiest person alive. Oh. We are. Oh. Signed, the filthiest people alive. Oh, just as I thought and a deliberate attempt to seize my title. Undaunted, Divine throws a birthday party for herself, and the Marbles attempt to sabotage it with what is in this world the most reprehensible act yet. I'd like to report a lewd and disorderly party. Calling the police. 
for all their filthiness, this is the first time that a character crosses an important line in a John Waters film. Hypocrisy. Murder and mayhem are all in good fun, but the moment a character is dishonest, the moment they express public disapproval of something they themselves do in private, that's when you know they're the real villain. Cops swarm the party, but the guests are ready, and they kill and eat the police. This is gonna be a recurring theme. Things never go well for cops in John Waters' films. Divine seeks revenge by heading to the Marvels' home, check out that poster for the queen on the wall, and licking everything in sight. Oh, this is where they eat crackers. This is where they shove dirty little portions of bacteria down their wheezy little throats. Uh, uh. But while they're engaged in a little sungs out, tongues out, what are the Marbles up to? The battle of filth has been won! Oh, just burning down Divine's home. That escalated quickly. Clearly, there's a difference between their ideas of filth. Divine is gross, sure, but not all that destructive. But the marbles go for scorched earth, literally. They're not just filthy, they're mean. Also, when they shot the scene, they all assured the neighbors that they were coordinating with the local fire department, which was not true at all. Look how close that torch comes to actually setting Mink Stole on fire. To me, that's more shocking than anything that appears in the movie. Anyway, when the Marbles return home, they're captured by Divine and her family. And here's where Connie and Raymond cross one more line. No, please, you must be mistaken. Our name is Waldo. Harry and Jean Waldo. The Marbles pretend to be someone else, denying who they truly are. This is what sets them apart from Divine's family. The moment it's Convenient. The marbles pretend to be someone they're not. But Divine is always true to herself. In fact, once she captures the marbles, she summons the media to brag about how disgusting she is, leading to one of my favorite movie speeches of all time. Could you give us some of your political beliefs? Kill everyone now. Condone first degree murder. Advocate cannibalism. Eat <laughs> Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. I wish every politician was that direct. This speech really sums up the philosophy that would guide John's work. Not that murder and cannibalism are something to be admired, but that honesty and shamelessness are. Divine's saying exactly what she believes. She's holding nothing back. She's incapable of being ashamed of who she is. I think one reason a character with these qualities resonated with audiences is that this film came out just three years after Stonewall, and in the middle of the first Pride Parades, or as they were often called back then, Liberation Day or Freedom Day parades. After decades of moral guardians holding queer people back, there were suddenly raucous parades all over the country, touched off by a riot to resist the police. This was a liberated movie for liberating times. And nobody's more liberated than Divine, who decides that the characters who try to hide their true natures must be punished. These two people must be humiliated in front of the media. The fact that the marbles can be humiliated proves that they're not really as gloriously filthy as they'd claimed. If they were, they'd just love the attention. And in fact, we'll see a character who's delighted to be publicly condemned in John's next film. After executing the marbles, Divine and company decide to relocate to Boise, which in real life was the site of a recent moral panic over homosexuality. And on their way out of town, there's one last gag. Watch as Divine proves that not only is she the filthiest person in the world, she is also the filthiest actress in the world. The last shot of the film is the one you've probably heard of, the one where Divine takes her own advice. Enduring this final shock was a badge of honor for adventurous moviegoers, and celebrating it put you in the proud company of the filthiest filmgoers alive. After all, this was a new age for cinema. It was because that was the year of porno chic. That was the year that hardcore pornography finally became legal. Exploitation was over. Proudly proclaiming that you'd gone to see Deep Throat or Pink Flamingos was a sign of sophistication and good taste in certain circles. Or at the very least, it told people that you weren't a pearl-clutching prude. Oh. 
I think it's the future of city living. Pink Flamingos firmly establishes the John Waters philosophy at the start of the 1970s, that shamelessness is next to godliness. After it came out, John says people kept asking him what he could possibly do to top Pink Flamingos. And the answer is the rest of the trinity of trash, female trouble in 1974 in which shamelessness is rewarded even beyond death, and desperate living in 1977 in which shamelessness triumphs over fascism. Let's look at female trouble next. Divine is back. This time she's a high school student, which is as plausible as anything else in most teen movies. Divine plays Dawn Davenport, a teenager with attitude. Who cares if we fail? I want to quit and I am right after I get my Christmas present. Juvenile delinquents are a long-running fascination for John Waters, who grew up on movies about teenage criminals and women in prison. Plus, he was a bit of a delinquent himself. His own high school asked him to skip his graduation ceremony because he looked like a hippie. John would go on to put troubled teens in later movies like Hairspray and Crybaby, but Dawn is one of his most troubled. She only has one thing on her mind. My parents better give me them cha-cha heels I asked for. That's all I can say. My parents gonna be real sorry if I don't get them cha-cha heels. I better get them cha-cha heels. I'm gonna be honest, I've been a fan of John Waters for decades and I have no idea what cha-cha heels are. This movie has become so iconic that when you try to look them up, all you get is pictures of Divine. So anyway, does she get them? Those aren't the right kind, I told you cha-cha heels, black ones! Nice girls don't wear cha-cha heels! If you say so. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but Dawn isn't a nice girl. I hate you, I hate the now, I hate Dawn runs away from home in a fury. She's picked up by herself out of drag, and after a tryst on a rain-soaked mattress, she's giving birth on an old sofa. I should have warned you to buckle up. This movie's structured like a fast-moving car crash. How many times have I told you with my car accident outside? Next, we're introduced to Dawn's neighbors, a hairdresser named Gator and his aunt Ida. Ida asks if he's dating any of the boys in the hair salon, and I love this dialogue so much. All those beauticians that you don't have any boy dates? I don't want any boy dates. Oh, honey, I'd be so happy if you turned Nellie. When Female Trouble came out, it was pretty unthinkable that a character would be encouraged to be gay. But this film is taking a protest slogan of the time, gay is good, and making it way more radical. To Ida, gay isn't just good, it's great. I worry that you work in an office, have children, celebrate wedding anniversaries. The world of heterosexual is a sick and boring life. Obviously, this is a parody of those scenes where a kid comes out and their parents tell them how worried they are that queer life is going to be so difficult. You might know those speeches. I know them because I got one when I came out about all the dangers I'd have to watch out for as a gay man, how I should be concerned about who might find out about me. And I do appreciate the concern, but I'll be honest, Gay life is pretty fantastic, so don't worry, we're good. Anyway, with this speech, female trouble exists in a kind of opposite universe from real life. And this is just one of many inversions in the film. Dawn runs into another inversion when she visits a hair salon, an exclusive place where only the finest clients are accepted. I'm a thief and a shit kicker, and uh, I'd like to be famous. The salon's owners are Donald and Donna Dasher, and they love what they see. They want to take glamour shots of Dawn committing crimes. We have a theory that crime enhances one's beauty. As luck would have it, crime and beauty are Dawn's two favorite things. The photo shoots commence, only taking a brief break when Aunt Ida, angry that Dawn has caused Gator to move away, throws acid in her face, but the acid only heightens her gorgeousness. I love crime too, especially the excitement of getting away with it! <laughs> These photos will be art, hardcore art. Just think of it, house robbing, new guns, murder, scars, fingerprints, lashes. But then Dawn goes a little too far. As her fame escalates, she gets a one-woman show that consists of her bouncing on a trampoline, smearing herself with fish, 
and then killing the audience. Who wants to be famous? Who wants to die for art? I do! Little does she know that the cops have been tipped off to the show by Dawn's daughter. I want you to go immediately to the police. Tell the police everything! Cops show up as soon as the first murder takes place. They're pointing their guns everywhere. This is oddly similar to an episode of Murder, She Wrote, that's set at a drag club. And what's that I see in the background? Pink flamingos! Coincidence? Probably. Anyway, Divine is chased down like it's the end of a monster movie. Remember what John said? I want him to be the Godzilla of drag queens. She's captured and put on trial to her utter delight. She's more famous than ever. Can't you stupid people see? I'm a huge star. Just pick up the papers and you'll see my picture on the front page. This whole sequence was inspired by John's real-life obsession with trials. He went to the trials for the Manson family and used what he saw in the film. In fact, Big Show trials would become a recurring theme in a lot of his work. Do you recycle? No. Oh! I don't have room in my kitchen. During the trial, the Dashers turn on her, pretending that they were innocent bystanders. Just like in Pink Flamingos, it's the hypocrites who are the real villains here, the ones who can't be honest about who they truly are. Donna and I were terrified, but stood by helplessly. Divine, on the other hand, is thrilled to confess. Yes, I did, and I'm proud of it. She's found guilty very guilty, and sentenced to die in the electric chair, which she considers another huge win. I feel lucky to receive the death penalty. Why, it's the biggest award I could get in my field. And honestly, she's not wrong. Odd as it is, this movie predicted the popularity of true crime. That was already a thing in John Waters' time, but now it's blown up into an entire genre. Today, audiences can't get enough of famous murders. The more lurid, the better. Dawn is absolutely right that she found a way to become a star. So the day that she's brought to the chair is the best day of her life. She delivers an acceptance speech, they throw the switch, the end. This is the movie's biggest inversion of all. Normally, a character dying in the end is a tragedy, but for Dawn, it's a triumph. She got exactly what she wanted, and it's all thanks to her shamelessness. It never even occurred to her to lie about what she did. The Dashers wanted to be famous too, but because they lied about their crimes, they just fade into obscurity. But Divine goes out exactly as she wants, at the height of her fame. This way my legend will have to live on. Good for her. From the studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay, and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. So now we've had a film about how shamelessness is a badge of honor. We've had a film about how shamelessness can help you reach your dreams. Now it's time for 1977's Desperate Living, which is about how shamelessness can bring about radical revolution and the defeat of fascism. We begin in an affluent Baltimore suburb, where all is not well. A housewife named Peggy Gravel has come home from the mental hospital, but a release may have been a bit premature. Trying to kill me in my own home! Uh. It's like war. Don't tell me. I don't know what Vietnam is like. Peggy is basically what happens if conservative politics go fully unmasked. She's terrified that people are trying to take something from her, like when she gets a call from a wrong number. How can you ever repay the 30 seconds you have stolen from my life? Or when she sees kids playing in her yard. Go home to your mother. Doesn't she ever watch you? Tell her this isn't some communist daycare center. She's convinced that everyone is out to get her, from powerful officials. I hate the Supreme Court. To the neighbors. Tell your mother I hate her. Tell your mother I hate you. 
When she catches the kids innocently playing doctor, she flies into a ridiculous moral panic. God! The children are having sex! The person looking after Peggy is their maid, Griselda. And you can tell that Peggy's husband is evil because when he discovers Griselda stealing toilet paper, first he makes some extremely racist remarks, and then he does what every villain in a John Waters movie does. I'm gonna call the police and report you! But he never gets the chance. Peggy's convinced that he's trying to attack her, so she and Griselda kill Mr. Gravel and then flee into the countryside. They're the original Thelma and Louise. Like Thelma and Louise, they're pulled over by a cop. But unlike Thelma and Louise, the cop demands their underwear. It's a scene that might be shocking, but apparently cops stealing underwear is just a thing that happens kind of frequently. At any rate, the cops tell him to go to a nearby town called Mortville. It's a special town for people like you two, people who should be so embarrassed by what they've done. A town for people who should be so embarrassed. A place where your shame becomes a literal prison. Subtle, John. They arrive and they meet Mole McHenry, a wrestler ashamed to have killed a man in the ring and also ashamed of what she thinks is her inability to satisfy her girlfriend Muffy. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Muffy's personal shame is that her babysitter put her kid in the fridge and then Muffy got mad and suffocated the babysitter in a bowl of dog food and then drove away with her husband's head stuck in the car window, strangling him. Okay, that one is a little more complicated, but at the end of the day, it's still weighing her down. I can never go back. I couldn't bear the shame. Mole is convinced that Muffy is unsatisfied with her physically, and so she decides to get what she calls a sex change at Johns Hopkins, the real-life Baltimore hospital that was, at the time, one of the only places in the world that performed what we now call gender confirmation. I'm a man, Muffy! A man trapped in a woman's body! This storyline, I'm sorry to say, is unfortunate. The dialogue suggests that Mole might be trans, but then later the story suggests that Mole was really a lesbian who wanted to satisfy her bisexual partner and may have never really wanted to be a man. This plays into multiple untrue tropes that conservatives use to this day to denigrate queer people. That lesbians wish they were men, or that trans people get surgery on a whim and later regret it. It's a real bummer to see those harmful stereotypes in this movie. Ruling over all this shame is the evil queen Carlotta. Carlotta's greatest joy is controlling the lives of the people in Mortville through a violent police force. The day that Peggy and Griselda arrive, Carlotta declares it backwards day and that everyone has to wear their clothes backwards or be killed. Hey, moron! You got your clothes on backwards! <laughs> John's previous films all involve some level of inversion. Bad is good, ugly is beautiful, but now he's making it literal with a childish cartoon villain declaring an opposite day. Peggy senses a kindred spirit in Carlotta. Dealing with the poor people is a waste of time. Only the rich should be allowed to live. I like your politics, Mrs. Gravel. What politics are those? Oh, you know, fascism. That's not an exaggeration. It's literally what Peggy says later on. For now, they come up with a scheme to give everyone in Mortville rabies in a scene that's not all that different from current right-wing fantasies about vaccines. Tomorrow is the first day of mass immunization, or at least that's what the morons of Mortville think. It's an anti-vax fever dream that an evil witch is putting rabies in vaccines. How oddly timely. Mole and Muffy learn about the scheme from Carlotta's daughter. They storm the castle, they kill the guards, they confront Carlotta and Peggy. It's here that Peggy makes her last stand. A single gunshot can never destroy the beauty of fascism! A single bullet? No. But you know what might? An uprising. The people of Mortville have reached a breaking point. They kill the cops, they declare an end to unjust laws, and they elevate Muffy to their queen. Queen 
Lisa is dead. Your days of humiliation have come to an end. Mortville is at last a free city. And they even eat the queen to celebrate. A surprisingly uplifting ending for a John Waters film. But it's not really the end, because these movies were at the forefront of a huge change in the way that gay characters were portrayed on screen. A shift that was only just getting started. All three of these films feature queer heroines who proudly declare who they are out in the open, something that audiences would come to admire more and more in the ensuing decades. Previously, queer characters might be timid or ashamed of who they are, like in Boys in the Band. You're a homosexual and you don't want to be. But there's nothing you can do to change it. Or they might be polite and well-behaved, like nearly everyone in The Queen. In fact, the showstopper of that documentary is Crystal LeBeja, who calls out the pageant authorities for unfair judging. See, I, I don't say she's not beautiful, but she wasn't looking beautiful tonight. She doesn't equal me. Look at her makeup. It's terrible. And loudly, shamelessly declares what she is. I am beautiful, and I know I'm beautiful. In the years that followed, we'd see a new kind of queer character on screens, ones who are unashamedly open about who they are. From Rocky Horror in 75... Just a sweet transvestite To Lacage on Broadway in 83 I've scuffered the damn Till you can shout out loud I am what I am To a show as mainstream as Golden Girls with Blanche's brother Clayton Blanche, we don't have to worry about what the world thinks about our relationship. It just doesn't matter because we're there for each other. I'd do anything for Doug. And he'd bend over backwards for me. <laughs> what was once shocking was becoming popular. And creators who were shocking got popular too. As you get into the 80s and 90s, you could see John Waters and Divine having a big impact on pop culture. Not in underground theaters and midnight movies, but in mainstream culture. When Disney animators started working on The Little Mermaid, they struggled to find a look for the movie's villain, Ursula the Sea Witch. In some early versions, she was slender and opulent. In others, she looks kind of cuddly. In one version, I don't really know what's going on here. But Howard Ashman, the film's producer and songwriter, and a Baltimore native, was a big fan of John Waters and Divine. He suggested that they steer the character of Ursula toward a giant lady with a growling voice and massive eyebrows, and even similar hair. And as soon as they saw the result, that was that. They found their Ursula. And John Waters himself found his way into the mainstream when he guested on one of the most popular sitcoms on television. The writers of The Simpsons wanted to have an episode where Bart might be gay. Just like with Howard Ashman, a lot of them were John Waters fans and decided to write him into the show as a character who teaches The Simpsons about homosexuality. It's honestly a very sweet episode, but as always seems to happen with John, it ran into problems with his old friends, the censor board. The network standards and practices department tried to block the episode from airing, saying that the topic of homosexuality was, quote, unacceptable for broadcast. Hot stuff coming through. So the showrunners decided to take a chance. They went ahead with production anyway, hoping that they'd find a way to get it on the air. And as luck would have it, just around that time, the president of Fox got fired and replaced along with all of the censors. The new team decided the episode was perfectly fine. And not only did John's episode air, it was watched by 15 million people and won an Emmy for Outstanding Animated Program. But the biggest mainstreaming of John's work is probably Hairspray, a 1988 movie starring Divine that was adapted for Broadway by the songwriting couple Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. The show was a huge hit, winning eight Tonys. But Mark and Scott caused a bit of a scandal when they accepted their Tony. I love this man. We're not allowed to get married in this world. I don't know why, but I would like to declare in front of millions of people, I love you and I'd like to live with you the rest of my life.
That kiss was a bit of a controversy when it aired in 2003. Viewers sent angry letters. Mark and Scott got criticized by Broadway legend Fred Ebb, who'd written a ton of music for Liza Minnelli of all people back in the 70s. When Fred Ebb was uh, interviewed, he said he thought we made a spectacle of ourselves. <laughs> Didn't it we? Was, it was dumb. <laughs> the bedroom is not the screen. <laughs> if you don't think two men should be allowed to kiss at the Tony Awards, I just don't know what to say to you. Anyway, I think it's fitting that the musical team behind Hairspray managed to shock people, carrying on the tradition that John established with his own early films in the 60s and 70s. Come on, come on, you'll see two actual queers kissing each other like lovers on the lips. These are actual queers. In 2003, that kiss was shocking. Now it seems like no big deal. Hairspray itself was once deemed daring and bold, now it's performed in high schools around the country. And that, John says, makes it his most devious film yet. Because it crossed over. In every high school in America, they're doing Hairspray now, which is two men singing a love song to each other, a movie that encouraged your white teenage daughter to date black guys. But no one notices that that's the message. They embrace it, and I somehow snuck that over. There's an unlikely morality to all of John's work. His heroes are all completely honest about who they are, no matter their flaws. They never let anyone else hold them back. His later work is what broke through to the mainstream, but beneath all the sex and cannibalism and filth, his early films have a childlike sincerity. And that's John Waters, putting the whole in wholesome. I'll be posting additional videos about all that over on Patreon. Check that out at patreon.com slash mattbaum, and subscribe to my newsletter at mattbaum.com for sneak peeks at what I'm working on next and other little fun tidbits that I discover. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got to take this call. I'm a divorced woman. Please help me. And now I'm not thinking straight. It's time to enter the Emerald City. Toto? I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. City goes inside Hurrah for a look at the neon woman who is indescribably divine. Also returning this evening, the village people singing Just a Gigolo.
In the late 60s, a Baltimore filmmaker by the name of John Waters began jolting the industry with a series of shockingly explicit underground films. He, in effect, created and molded the queen of the underground in the character of a 300-pound female impersonator whom he named Divine. Well, it's been over 10 years, and the phenomenal popularity of this character is stronger than ever. So popular, in fact, that he's now starring in his third or fourth stage production, which is Tom Ian's The Neon Woman, directed by Ron Link. This presentation is currently playing in might seem to be an awkward uh, surroundings for a stage production, a disco. It's actually more like a nightclub. It's called Hurrah, and it's on, located on Manhattan's Upper West Side and West 62nd Street. Of course, the critics are highly opinionated as to whether or not this unorthodox concept in theater works, but from all outward appearances, it seems to be working for everybody else. Tonight, we'll be looking at some of the show, and I'll be talking with Divine about his films, this play, and whatever it is that supports his tremendous cult following. Also coming up a little later this evening, we welcome back by extremely popular request, The Village People, this time singing Just a Gigolo. It was shot earlier this year here in New York, so you'll uh, know you're not hallucinating when you see ice and snow on the ground, which I'm sure none of us miss. So uh, relax, and we'll be right back with The Neon Woman after this. Don't go away. Just an hour and a half away in Atlantic City, New Jersey, is the most all-inclusive gay complex in the Northeast. The Grand Central Resort features over 175 beautiful rooms, including penthouse suites. And just an elevator ride away, the Showbiz Lounge with spectacular stage shows, the After Dark Piano Bar, Atlantic City's famous M&M Disco, and right on the premises, Club Baths Atlantic City. Right off the boardwalk, the Grand Central Resort in Atlantic City. For reservations, call 609-344-1922. Come on down. The Grand Central Resort is no gamble. How long have you been in Lesbian? I never understand what that means, because as far as I'm concerned, I was born that way. When I fell in love with this guy, it was just... I mean, it, it meant so much to me. It meant I was a real person. I wasn't just a machine. Uh, I had really incredibly deep emotions. I didn't know I could feel Word is out. Stories of some of our lives and now just, playing was, the Quad Cinema and the Embassy 72nd really Street. It was uh, That's beautiful. Now is the time to visit the world's largest emporium of erotica. Come, experience New York's most extensive selection of adult magazines, films, and paperbacks. 250 Book Center and GNA Books. No matter what you're seeing, if it's the finest in visuals you're after, we've got it all. Two locations in Manhattan. 250 Book Center at 250 West 42nd Street. GNA Bookstore located at 251 West 42nd Street. Come on over. You never know who you might bump into. You may find it difficult locating Jan Wallman's, but the best things in life aren't always easy to find. Jan Wallman's, 28 Cornelia Street, where 6th Avenue meets West 4th. Jan Wallman's, fine food in a fine setting. The new senator, Horace Bradley, just passed a new law against pornography, sodomy, and strip bars in Maryland. Degenerate people like you have had your day here. We're going to stamp out all this disgusting, revolting, sinful, low-life trash. Yeah, we're going to wipe this state clean. And while you're at it, why don't you wipe my ass? <laughs> <laughs> you 
discovered divine well it wasn't me actually it was the neighbor john waters who made all the films pink flamingos and uh, female trouble and we were neighbors and that's why he refers to me as the girl next door almost that's right that's exactly (laughs) what he told me we're the name divine well he gave it to me he said that i was so that should be my name there wasn't anything else that really fit me (laughs) he said well you are divine so there's your name so we'll remain divine he referred to you as the girl next door, as a matter of fact. Almost. Why almost the girl? Well, because I'm not. <laughs> You've well, a, can I show you here? I'm telling you. No. You have appeared, or starred, rather, in a lot of other called underground films, some of which are entitled uh, Female Trouble, Mondo well, Trasho. That's with um, Roman Candles, Eat Your Makeup, Mondo Trasho, Multiple Maniacs, The Diane Linkletter Story, Pink <laughs> Flamingos, and Female Trouble. Tell me something about the, the, the Diane Linkletter story has got to be... <laughs> the Neon Woman. It's, it's only a way. <laughs> Tell me something about female... Uh, you're best known, I suppose, for Pink Flamingos, which was uh, called, as it was referred to in the ads, as an exercise in poor taste. <laughs> Most of John's things are, yeah. <laughs> It's a whole different type of humor for a different type of person, you know, <laughs> than what people are, you know, normal. Uh, some people call it black comedy or, you know, black humor, or, but it's a different type of humor than, uh, than other writers, I think. Do you find, well, okay, now that you, you, are you, do you feel like you're trapped in this character? I mean, are you destined to be, <laughs> to go down as Divine forever? I mean, would you ever... Well, Divine, that's me, it's my name, but I mean, the characters I've played, like Dawn and Babs, and not really, because they're all sort of different. Um, I do want to play, play men's roles. I did play a man in uh, Female Trouble for right. a short time. In a play I did with Tom O'Horgan, Spring Rights, I right. played um, a man. So I do want to do that, but I mean... Um, so I'm a character actor, I guess. <laughs> but it just happens I've been playing women's parts, but I think I play them very well. Where were you before you came to Baltimore? You mean where do I come from? Yes. I was born in Columbus, Ohio, if that means anything. And my folks got the California itch. Or a worm farm outside L.A. I was age 10. Then Ma died and Pa, 
Yes, go on, my child. Go on, I will understand. My own Paul raped me. He raped me and then I fled the worm farm. Fled to San Francisco and found work as a, a high fashion model. A model? You mean a prostitute? That's a lie. I did hand commercials. Hand commercials? All right, maybe a few underwear ads once in a while, but never. Oh, you were a common whore in San Francisco. Who isn't in San Francisco? <laughs> you took money to let men use your body. Whore, whore. Lies, lies. Okay, okay, I confess. I posed for a few bondage pics, but never, never! You sold your body to anyone with a dollar! This is your last chance, Storm! Look, 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 Jesus is watching! Yes! Yes, Jesus! Yes, 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 if you accept your atonement! I will make the way clear for you! I'm a businesswoman! I don't do my own act anymore! I am legitimate! I pay taxes! On dirty money! In 1955, you were arrested in San Francisco for prostitution and then skipped your bond. I could send you back. No, no, please, please don't do that. I'll do anything not to go back to California. It's so boring. <laughs> I will protect you and your club. On one condition. Anything, anything. I'll do anything you ask. Pray with me. Pray? I haven't prayed since my father raped me. That's when I lost faith in mankind. That made me hate. That's when I became this overblown cartoon for protection. <laughs> no one's ever going to see the real me again. The sin, the vulnerable, little angel. Inside this big, flashy exterior. <laughs> we all have our reasons for sinning, and I can help you. You're good. I want to be good too, but with these tits, it's hard. I will save you. You will. My whole life, I've waited for one man to save me. Yes, I will save you through prayer. Pray with me. Look. Jesus is watching. Yes, look, Jesus. I'll pray. Look, Jesus, I'm praying. Look, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, give ear unto our prayer. Oh, Jesus, give ear unto our prayer. Deliver my soul from the wicked. Deliver my soul from the wicked. Give me faith. Give me faith. Give me hope. Give me hope. Give me salvation. Give me salvation. Give me strength. Give me strength. Give me those tits. Now, now, stop it.
You're listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack, and this is Emerald City, a rare insight into the archives of the 1970s of America's first gay TV show. This is your third stage role? Uh, well, this is my second uh, major stage role. It was Women Behind Bars, which was also written by Tom Ein and directed by Ron Link. They both, Tom wrote this and uh, Ron directed this. I did other shows in California, though, when I lived out there. Divine Saves the World and uh, Lice Palace. Lice Palace? Vice. <laughs> Lice. For the takeoff on Mask of the Red Death. Do you prefer stage productions to film? No. <laughs> I'm basically a lazy person. I love the stage. I prefer working a couple months than having off for a couple months. This is, uh, it's great for you. I mean, I love it. I'm not saying I don't like it. My preference is film, because film is forever, you know, it's always there. I mean, I mean the show tonight is now a memory for the people that saw it, and the ones that didn't will never know. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> it's so demanding, stage work. I mean, it's every night. And it's, uh, well, we're very lucky. We have a wonderful producer, Mr. Robert Boykin. We only have to work Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So we're doing a six, six shows a week where other people are doing eight. So we're very lucky that way. But uh, it's still very demanding. And, I mean, you know, it's every night. It, it's the, uh, the same thing. I'm not saying, it's not repetitious. It's hard to explain because I like doing it. And it's only, it will only enhance my next film, I think, because you learn about... Uh, I mean, you're blocking your, um, your whole attitude on stage. I mean, because the people sitting right there, they're either going to laugh or just sit there. <laughs> How often so, does that happen, though? I mean, people well, that come to see you Not too often, but every once in a while you get those... Like, when I just did London, I did Women Behind Bars in London for six months. And your London audiences are quite different than your American audiences, where they're very, very quiet. They think it's rude to laugh out loud or whatever during a show. So they're very quiet until the end of the, pr the program, and then they show their appreciation. But in the meantime, you think, well, they hate it. You know, what's going on? Because I was so used to your rowdy uh, American audiences, you know, which I love. People standing up and screaming and tearing the set down, anything. You know, that's, that's very interesting. I find that when you're taking your curtain call at the very end, the more... The more obscene the gesture, the louder they scream. It's, it's sort of a phenomenon. It's like you create a... Well, it's like the same old show business thing. Give them what they want, you know. And, that and, is, that's, and that's what they want. They want to laugh. They want, people like to laugh at sex. People like to laugh at, at dirty things. And people love to be shocked, I think, you know. So that's my job, to get out there and shock them as much as I can. Because there isn't that much anymore that shocks people, I don't think. But to see a 300-pound man out there in a blonde wig and a, and a dress and coming off as people to, well, he looks very hot, you know. So they, they, don't, they, don't, they do get it, but they don't, you, you know. So it's, um, that's why I love doing it, too. What After Neon Woman? I, we had John, um, John Waters on the program a, a few months ago, and he mentioned that uh, you weren't in his last film. You weren't in Desperate Living, no, and he said he missed women. you. Yeah, uh, I miss them, too. Yeah. Uh, what are you doing after Neon Woman? Do you have anything well, we've had offers to do this in, uh, in Los Angeles and in Paris. And um, I don't know, John wants me to do a new film uh, next, next spring. And uh, there have been a couple other offers for uh, shows. You know, you're very popular in colleges. I mean, you wouldn't believe, I mean, you are 
an overwhelming oh, success in the college circuit. Audience are college, but people mostly think it is all gay, and I'm not saying, you know, oh, it's not. God love every one of them. <laughs> God love but, uh, every one of them. Because, um, but there are a lot of college students, and the audience now, or my audience and the audience for the shows, it's, 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 gay, it's gay people, male and female, and it's uh, uh, a lot of uh, older straight people, married couples in their 40s and 50s, you know, which people would never dream. But from traveling around with the movies and from doing the show in London, it's unbelievable. They love it oh, yeah. because it's like something they've missed, and now they can come and see it. You know, it's like all of us burned out hippies or whatever. So. So they can see what we're doing now. Die, you bitch! Die! Yeah, I'll burn, but I'll never die because I'm the neon woman, and the neon woman is divine. Wonderful. We're at Haraz on West 62nd Street. We've just seen Tommy and the Neon Woman starring Divine. We'll pause for a commercial and be right back with the village people singing Just a Gigolo. Don't go away. Think it takes years to get a great body? Think again. Profile Fitness Center can change your profile in months, have you looking great this summer. Profile has it all, the finest facilities in New York, including the latest Nautilus equipment, expert instruction, and friendly clientele. After your workout, relax in the steam room, sauna, whirlpool, or TV lounge. Profile at 47th Street and 2nd Avenue is open seven days a week, so get the body you've always wanted at Profile. Call now and get the summer free. Metrolines. 24-hour live answering service. Rates are from $5 monthly. Friendly, efficient Metro Lines. From their new album, Macho Man, The Village People, and Just a Gigolo. I'm just a gigolo, gigolo, and everywhere I go, gigolo, people gigolo, know the part gigolo, I'm playing. Gigolo, 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 Pay for every dance, gigolo, selling each romance. Gigolo, oh, gigolo, what they're saying. Gigolo, 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 and there will come a day, and you will pass away. What will they say about me? When the end comes, I know they'll say just a gigolo. Life goes on without me. I'm just a gigolo, gigolo, and everywhere I go, gigolo, people gigolo, know the part I'm playing. Pay for every dance, gigolo, selling each romance. Gigolo, oh, gigolo, what they're saying. Gigolo, gigolo, and there will come a day, and you will pass away. Well, 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 what will they say about me? When the end comes, I know they'll say just a gigolo. Life goes on without me. Cause I ain't got nobody And so nobody can call me this Nobody can call me Cause I'm so sad and lonely Sad and lonely, sad and lonely Won't some sweet mama come and take a chance with me Cause I ain't so bad 
call me Nobody can call me this Nobody can call me Nobody can call me this Nobody can call me Studios of Bay FM in Byron Bay and broadcasting across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you've been listening to Not Thinking Straight with Michael Mack. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, goodbye. Well, you can twist and shout. Let it all It's good for my voice, but you won't fool the children of the revolution. Now you won't fool the children of the revolution.